0: Creative Babble. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all.
1: This episode is going to dive into some really deviant adult content that, trust me, is just not suitable for children. So if you have some little ones in the room, just please, just listen to this one some other time. Okay, let's start the show. Previously on Pretend, Susan Fenson discovered her extended family on a website called genealogy.com her newfound cousin, Leonard, bombarded her with pornographic emails and pictures of himself masturbating. And then there was Leonard's sister, Sharon and Karen. Karen would try to keep the peace, while angry Sharon would lash out at Susan with violent and threatening messages. Oh, and then there was these two rapists who were contacting Susan. They would taunt her and tell her that they were watching her from a distance.
0: I had been broken down for such a long period of time. I mean, just like mentally shattered after repeated threats and going around and round with multiple people coming at me.
1: Little does Susan know, but none of these people are real. They're all made up.
0: That was just one of the worst moments in the whole thing because I'm cornered. They have me they have me they know how to get to me they know I'm easily frightened or I mean I think that would frighten anyone but they they just know at that point
1: I'm Javier Leva and this is pretend stories about real people pretending to be someone else
0: You know, there's a lot of buzz
1: about CBD nowadays. It's been proven to alleviate pain and inflammation, as well as anxiety and depression. But did you know that not all CBD is created equal? I discovered hemp fusion. Hemp fusion is CBD plus omegas and trypenes to help you feel better. I just got my shipment of hemp fusion and I'm loving it so far, so... Get yours today. Go to hempfusion.com, promo code PRETEND to get 20% off your first order. So you have all these people in your digital life harassing you, but who can you trust in your personal life?
0: Bobby. So I don't really have a large circle of friends to begin with. So already I'm isolated and Nolan is just doesn't really even want to talk about it anymore. You know, he doesn't want to get into it, really. He just wants it to stop and avoid it. Um, So Bobby was my emotional support.
1: As you can imagine, Susan reached her limit. The paranoia set in, and she no longer had a sense of safety. Her boyfriend, who we're calling Nolan, also felt like he was being followed. And every knock on the door made her heart stop.
0: There was a knock at my window one night. And I think because my nerves were completely wrecked, it just sent me into like a panic. Um, It may have turned out to be absolutely nothing, right? It could have even been the UPS guy knocking on my window. But anytime someone would knock on my window, I would jump. Sometimes I got to the point where anytime my phone would ring, it would cause my heart to constrict and even just opening up my email was hands shaking. So I was just really a mess.
1: So here's where the story kind of takes an even more bizarre turn, because you find out that um, Sharon was asking McCautry, the rapist, how to obtain chloroform. Can you tell us about that?
0: It would later be revealed that there was a a kind of a conspiracy to kidnap Nolan and myself. And they were looking uh looking into how to procure chloroform to achieve that
1: God, that's terrifying. and then there was talks of cannibalism. Tell me how did that happen?
0: Well, through that circle, the kinkfest circle of cautri uh, and I guess that even extended out into like other people that I did not know about. Apparently this was like a large network of people. Um, there was talk about kidnapping us, Nolan and myself and taking us to a, um, like a slave camp, like where this cult lived upstate and they were into cannibalism and, something on the horizon of an event was coming that was like billed as the fall slaughter and that we were going to you know be the invited guests to that
1: lou burr one of the rapists invited susan to the fall slaughter the fall slaughter it was an event to die for and was hosted by the tribe of 12 a cannibalistic cult from upstate new york
0: and they they seem to just take enormous pleasure in. Uh, scaring me threatening me and just 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 wrecking my life
1: because now we're just getting to the point where this is ridiculous right um did you ever think that oh there are real cannibals out there that want to eat me or did you feel like wait is this a prank at this point because the email says the subject line says eating it alive the tribal cookout don't turn the spit too slow. All right, let's butter her up again. This time from head to toe. I mean, it almost seems a little comical.
0: I uh, know, I did not think it was a prank. I felt like whatever was going on and was being directed at me. You know, just a regular person who happened to stumble into this hornet's nest. And I was on guard and I was afraid. People go missing. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people go missing every year and are never found for whatever reason, either they want to disappear or they are made to disappear. And I felt like almost anything was possible at this point.
1: So, so, so that's happening. And at this point, do you, are are you like in contact with the police or the authorities? I mean, you have to, I mean, this has to be the line that they cross, right?
0: Yeah, I did go to the police, and there were there was a picture of what looked to be like a real um, a real live dead body that was emailed to me, and I was taking it seriously. I went to the police again because that's all I had. You no, know, couldn't just pull up, pull up stakes and run at that point course you know i walked into the precinct and they were all you know some of the cops had seen me before and i guess they were thinking to themselves okay yeah it's her again because they were, they were definitely giving me that impression but they did you know give me the time they let they let me talk to a detective and i show i told him a story i showed him the pictures and he looked at the picture of the dead woman
1: the police dismissed the picture of the dead body
0: this could be just something off the internet and I, I agreed, you know, yeah, it could be something just off the internet, but this really looks like a dead person. And yeah. I take this seriously if someone's sending me this. You know, people just don't randomly, uh, it's not a casual thing to send people pictures of dead bodies, dead women specifically.
1: The police were no help. So Susan stepped it up a notch.
0: I had originally called the FBI uh, like a couple of months before that and got a, an agent on the phone or, or whoever was it answered the phone. I don't know that there are actual agents answering the phone, but you know, whoever answers the phone at FBI headquarters in New York City, I got a human being and I told her, there's a plot to kidnap me. Uh, there's a cult upstate, you know, I mean, I was uh, giving her this wild outlandish story in like uh, 15 seconds. And as I was telling the story, I realized just how insane must sound and i know that someone answering the phone at the fbi probably gets the craziest phone calls all the time
1: susan's boyfriend nolan also called the fbi but this time he was able to get their attention
0: and i guess it was the talk of cults upstate kidnapping that that sort of hit the right you know sort of tone with them and we was passed over to a, a real FBI agent and we were given a a meeting with an FBI agent.
1: And your story sounds nuts. I mean, no offense, it really does.
0: I was ashamed to tell that story to anyone because I knew how crazy it made me look.
1: The FBI assigned special agent Brandon Waller to the case. <laughs> yeah. And uh what did uh what did Agent Waller say?
0: And as I started to unpeel this onion, you know, the characters, the family, where it all started, where it was, you know, heading, and you know, where might it head, and just spelling out the whole thing, and watching his eyes widen as I, you know, placed profile uh, offender profiles on the desk. And he was starting to look through it and he was really starting to take it seriously. I don't think that he thought I was crazy. I think he felt that like this was somebody who's really scared and does not know what's going on, but there's a real problem here. But I just felt like at least he's taking me seriously.
1: And what did uh, Bobby think of all this? I mean, your friend, Bobby, who has been with you through this entire time kind of guiding you.
0: I think he was just sort of like at first is sort of like, hmm, why are you doing this? This, You know, like, is it really that bad? Or like, and he was still, you know, supportive. But I, I think he felt like at this point, like going to the FBI was just like, maybe I was like escalating it too much. I always felt like, look, you're my friend. You're just supposed to support me. And, you know, guide me and straighten me out if I need to, but I don't really want I didn't really want everything to be questioned all the time. So I said, you know, this is what has to happen. And I told him I was writing up a report, and I was going to send it to them, I sent it to Agent Waller when I was done.
1: I called up FBI Special Agent Brandon Waller to talk about the case. so glad that we have you on the show because I bet you that my listeners right now they don't believe a single word that Susan has said because it sounds so bizarre and it cannot be real. I mean this story cannot be real. Is this story real?
2: That's a difficult question so you started out with a a hard one. So yes the story is real. I think where people may have a disbelief is all of the the characters that Susan thought were were real but are not actually real. You got
1: involved in the case and, and describe to me that moment when you're meeting Susan for the first time and you're learning all this information.
2: I I'm I'm probably thinking what like many of the people you described earlier were thinking that it was that it was too unbelievable and that it, and it was not real in meeting with with susan she had a lot of these emails printed out she's very detailed but it seemed very far-fetched uh, but you, you don't know until until you start digging and that's what i did is i started looking into some of these folks
1: an interesting thing happened as soon as the fbi got involved the email stopped all of them.
0: Everything just went blank. Like someone hit a switch and the stage just went dark. No more emails, no more threads, no more strange phone calls. It really just stopped, which is weird. I thought it was very weird. I mean-
1: and do you think that these people that who were harassing you, the knockmans or whoever they were, got wind that maybe that you were talking to the FBI
0: I didn't think so, because there would be no, no way for that to happen. It would be impossible for them to know what I was doing. I mean, I was only telling Bobby. I wrote a summary and sent it to Agent Waller, and I, Bobby wanted to see the summary that I sent. And I said, well... Agent Waller asked me not to show it to anyone or talk to anyone. And we kind of struggled with that a little bit after that over him wanting to see this summary.
1: And this is all through chat and email, right? Because you're not like physically next to Bobby, right? He's in D.C. and you're in New York.
0: Right. It's mostly email, but also phone.
1: Susan says that Special Agent Waller did a background check on all the characters involved. He started with the most dangerous ones first, the rapist.
0: Agent Waller actually got in touch with, you know, the state prisons or whatever he had, you know, there were a number of different agencies that handle our our prison systems, federal or state. Um, He found out that McCaughtry never left prison.
1: So, wait a minute, how can McCautry be sending you these emails if he's behind bars?
0: Yes, exactly. So, hmm. once that news broke, that, that also changed everything forever. Because with, a, with one character missing from the equation, the story doesn't hold together because they're all interacting with each other. They're all plotting together. They're all in this together. Karen and Sharon and Leonard. So with McCaughtry never having left prison, that changed everything. And that meant that, that this can't even be real.
1: McCaughtry and Big Lou were very real. Just not the people Susan thought she was communicating with. The real guys were locked up in prison but not the same prison. They were in different counties, and that nuance is important.
0: So, I had never noticed that before. Like, that, would have, that would have been the first thing that didn't make any sense.
1: This means that Big Lou and McCautry were both criminals, but they weren't in prison for raping a girl with Leonard in college. If they had committed the same crime, they would have been tried in the same county. So now... <laughs> This whole thing starts feeling like a farce, right?
0: None of this is really real, but there's somebody behind this. There's really something going on here. And that made it eerie in a different way.
1: But what about Leonard, Sharon, Karen, the whole Nachman family? So who do you think is... Is it Leonard that's writing all these things? Or is it Sharon? Or is it Karen, the nice one? <laughs> I mean, like... Who is the puppet master?
0: I thought that there was someone making all of this up because none of these characters could be real at this point. It was impossible.
1: So you're thinking none of them are real. Not a single one of them.
0: Wow. So Karen, Sharon, Hal, Leonard, uh, Sharon's friends, all of that was not real.
1: Agent Waller says that none of these characters are real. However, all of them exist in the real world. I'll have him explain.
2: All the names and the people involved were real, in the sense that you can look them up and they existed. Leonard Nachman was one of the family members involved, and I spoke with a Leonard Nachman, who is not the Leonard Nachman in this story. So he he was just someone whose name was taken and and used, and a lot of the information that I had on Leonard Nachman turned out to be somebody else. And I called I called him and and spoke with him, and he was surprised and had no idea that his name was was out there. So there's always a, a a bit of truth in all of all of these individuals that were that were causing her all this grief.
1: So, at this point in the story, I bet you really want to know who is behind all this. If this were a movie, the detective or the special agent would stop at nothing until he finds out who orchestrated this menacing plot. Except, this isn't a movie, this is real life, and real life can sometimes be anticlimactic.
0: I think that once Agent Waller settled down, you know, with this idea that, okay, There's no, there's no McCautry involved. This is all fake. He kind of just dropped the ball for a while and actually nothing was happening for a while. Things really just kind of died down for a few months.
1: Once the FBI got involved, everything suddenly stopped. Susan says that the problem pretty much went away, but the FBI didn't just drop the case. Agent Waller was still investigating and quietly working in the background but it was months before Susan heard from him again. But you're not getting harassed anymore either. The problem kind of went away.
0: I thought it did. One day I was at work, I was sitting at my desk, I was very busy. I look at my computer and all of, I get all these messages pouring into my inbox. Your greeting has been sent. Your greeting has been sent. Your greeting has been sent. Your greeting has been opened. Your greeting has been opened, blah, blah, blah. And this was going on like dozens of them. So I clicked on one of them and it was a Yahoo greeting that was sent purportedly from me to everyone in my office. It was a a sort of a musical greeting card that Yahoo! Greetings used to have. And what this was, was this sort of really crudely animated greeting card with stupid music of a, I think it was a mule or a donkey. And the message that you could, you know, customize in this greeting was, I'm, I, I don't like my job, I'm bored, I need sex, if you want to contact me later, you know, let me know. And I was sent to my boss, the president of the company, production people, freelance artists, uh, people in accounting, everyone. And I was watching this in real time happen, you know, it still kept coming. Your email has been checked, your email has been opened, your greeting has been sent. I mean, this was going on for like a long time. Yeah, that's embarrassing. It was humiliating beyond words. Humiliating. Disgusting. I was just being thrown around by this invisible, you know, person. Just tossed around like a doll. And like, they could just do whatever they want to me. Like they owned me.
1: Yeah. A message to tell you that, yeah, I was quiet for a while, but I could still taunt you and torment you whenever I want. Keep in mind, Susan first got an email from her fake cousin Karen back in November of 2003. Now it's 2005 and this is still going on. It's one thing for them to attack her at home, but now whoever's doing this has brought the circus to her work and Susan's coworkers are all staring at her. Now you have to explain this to people, what that was all about. For a long time, this was all contained to your personal life, but now it's now seeping into your work life. Now, what do you do? Do you go back to Agent Waller?
0: I called Agent Waller and I hadn't heard, you know, we hadn't talked in a while, but I I just called him crying and I told him what happened. And I just said, if you can help me, please help me. And after we hung up the phone, he got back in touch with me and said that they were sending subpoenas out to Yahoo.
1: So why did it take so long for the FBI to subpoena the IP address of all these messages to track down the internet stalker? I mean, I'm no darknet diary cybersecurity expert, but even I know that the first thing you do is check the IP address to track down the source. So I asked Agent Waller. Why wasn't that the first thing that the FBI did? A
2: subpoena, while not overly intrusive, is a is a investigative step that could ultimately intrude on someone's someone's privacy. It does take a court process, in this case, a grand jury subpoena in order to get that information. We can't just call up. Yahoo or Verizon and get that information. In order to do that, you have to establish that some sort of criminal act was occurring. And then at that point, you also have to dig deep into the emails that she had to really find out where the origination came from. But initially, I wanted to see if there was any any truth to this Complaint is what it comes down to. you have to do certain less intrusive attempts to to try to find something out because if, if every complaint came in and you immediately acted on that, sometimes you could be acting on wrong information or unnecessarily intruding on someone's rights.
0: Agent Waller cautioned me and said, Look, you know we're going to send this subpoena out." but we cannot guarantee we're gonna get somebody. If someone is using a library computer or a public computer in an internet cafe, we may not be able to pin it down to one person, but we're gonna try.
1: I asked Susan if she had any idea of who this could be.
0: I don't know, I just don't know. All I know is that someone out there has it in for me in a very serious and vicious way.
1: It took a little while, But Agent Waller was able to come up with a hit. But that's exciting, right? I mean, they were able to narrow it down.
0: So I I told Bobby, of course, you know, hey, guess what? They've narrowed it down to AOL and Verizon.
1: Bobby was Susan's friend through all of this. And now it looks like he's being targeted too.
0: And then he started to kind of come up with some, some strange story about how his computer was being turned on in the middle of the night and uh, emails being sent out that he never sent. And I'm listening to this and thinking, is that even possible? So I thought, all right, well maybe somebody is, you know, accessing your computer. That's weird. And then I thought, well, maybe whoever has been bothering me had somehow stumbled across Bobby. Though I was very, very careful in keeping him out of the fray, you know,
1: Then, one random day after work, Agent Waller calls Susan and tells her that he has a break in the case. The FBI sent a subpoena to Yahoo and pulled an AOL and Verizon account, plus the IP address, which identifies the device on the internet.
0: So, he said, well, do you know anybody in D.C.? Mm. And I said... Yeah, but that didn't sound strange to me at first, because I thought, you know, D.C. is a big city, right? Yeah, there's lots of people in D.C. Why wouldn't it be coming from a place like that? And I said, yeah, I do. So I called her and asked her if his
2: name meant anything to her. And as I remember it, she was kind of quiet and, and, and didn't know why I would be asking these questions
0: and I said you know bobby and i gave his last name and he's like what's their address and i thought well wait a minute that i mean why why are we pursuing this so i i said i gave him the address i knew the address you know and every apartment number and everything and he said well what's their phone number and i gave him the phone number and he said well this is this is your guy and it was it was bobby
1: So your friend, the guy who you confided in with this whole time, the guy who has been by your side, even when you've been sending him all these emails, he's been giving you advice, this is the guy, Bobby, who they traced through these emails? Wow.
0: In total shock. I had so many thoughts running through my mind at once. It was just breathless.
1: You know what happened next, because uh, Bobby doesn't know that the FBI knows who he is, right? So you almost have to like let him know that that maybe that the the FBI is going
0: nowhere with this. I gave him enough information to put him on on like high alert, you know, because I told him. They had narrowed it down to AOL and Verizon. So I would imagine what was mine was that, wow, they, they're going to find me. So I sat down with the Agent Waller and another FBI agent and talked it all out. And after about an hour or so, he said, look, just, just don't let on that you know. Just continue to interact, act normal, and we'll... We're gonna be doing things. We don't really know what we're doing yet, but just you know, keep the communication going. Don't just drop out. I uh, did not feel comfortable communicating with him at all, so I wasn't initiating any contact. If he emailed me, uh, I would just say, "Oh, I'm having a lousy day. You know, I can't. You know, don't really feel like talking right now." And then, like you know, let it go and. You know, I would just sort of blame it on, like, look, I'm I'm just kind of depressed about things. I've got problems with money. I've got problems at work. I don't really feel like myself.
1: Because I could imagine that if he calls you, you have to, like, act like everything's cool. I would have a hard time acting like everything's cool.
0: Yeah. Because he scared me. I found him terrifying at this point. And after a little while, you know, he was sort of getting the feeling that I really wasn't myself. And he was like, is everything all right? But I think he was really panicking on his end at the same time, knowing that, okay, they got got AOL, they got Verizon, and now Susan's acting funny. So, who was
1: Bobby Ironside? From what Susan tells me, he never really worked a full-time job. He could be here, he could be there.
0: Uh, Bobby was a kind of a chameleon. He lived in D.C., with his boyfriend and didn't have to work and didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. So he had kind of comfortable life at that point and seemed to have a lot of time on his hands apparently. And I don't know, I still can't totally explain what would motivate someone to put another human being through that kind of torture but
1: looking back, you must be replaying all these conversations with Bobby in your head, and did Bobby ever have any fetishes? Did Bobby have any characteristics or traits, like any of these characters he created?
0: Reading through those emails, I was st- things were starting to sort of emerge that I never really would have like noticed before.
1: Bobby was able to slip in and out of these characters so convincingly. But how was he able to do it so effectively? Susan says that each of these characters were a manifestation of Bobby's own personality.
0: Well, you had Karen, who was home with the kids and baking and taking care of the domestic side of life. Uh, You had Sharon, who was consumed with some kind of internal rage and destructive kind of rage. And then you had Leonard, who was the you know high-flying, uh, wealthy, uh, kink fetishist who had nothing but time to indulge his his fetishes, um, but a character who was also like deeply troubled. Um, I think looking back, each of those voices were really something that was coming from within him,
1: and not and not only these fictional characters, but he also took, like, real-life characters and made them part of the story, right?
0: Yeah, real-life, two real-life characters plus a real-life, uh, murder, Murder. which was terrible and and just sad and disturbing and just, just awful. That was one of the worst parts.
1: Yeah, Jennifer Wipke, the girl who Leonard was suspected of murdering, she was really murdered. That was a real case. Susan says that Bobby took a real story and crafted his narrative around it. He was like a puppet master who would...
0: ...commandeer a human being's life and then work them like a puppet until they just break down. And enjoying every, uh, every emotion, the fear, uh, the sadness, the desperation, the loneliness, uh, all of those things... I don't know. I think that's like using someone as a human pincushion.
1: Susan couldn't help but rewind the tape in her head and think about Bobby being there pushing the buttons the whole time.
0: I'm down there gaunt and thin and waxy looking and just desperate um, trying to figure out what I can do to save myself. And I'm remembering like sleeping on that couch and, you know, the the other side of the wall is, you know, Bobby's bedroom. And while I'm in a, a momentary escape in my sleep, he's on the other side of the computer and continuing the, the horror show.
1: And he's comforting you at the same time while he's also torturing you. Yeah. <laughs> he's quite a skillful storyteller to keep all these stories straight in his head.
0: yeah. I mean, there was a continuity there, very complex, uh, required a lot of endurance and creativity and, you know, thinking back to where it all started, you know, from the moment that I left that message on that genealogy page, it really was only just within about a week that I heard from Karen.
1: It was time to take down Bobby. The FBI had everything they needed to serve Bobby and his partner with a search and seizure warrant at their DC condo. The FBI swept through their apartment and confiscated computers, files, anything they could find.
2: We did as usual we knocked on the door and and uh, the, the partner the, I believe the owner of the residence he he answered the door and I think he was he was completely. Uh, caught off guard, he, uh, he was unaware that that Robert was doing this kind of stuff. So I think he was he was taken aback quite a bit. He was very very cooperative. There was no arrest warrant; it was only a search warrant. So nobody was going to be placed under arrest at that point. Myself and another agent from Washington D.C. we took Robert up to the roof and conducted a, a an interview of him, a consensual interview of him there. He's uh as I said, he's not in custody. We just he agreed to speak with us. Did he at, at any point during that interview um confess that he was responsible for this communication? The first interview we did on the roof and he he made some some comments about Susan, that he knew Susan, he was kind of aware of this, he, he, he tried to kind of deflect a bit where, you know, he said he knew about Leonard Nachman and some, and some of the others, but he was, he was kind of separating himself, of course, from it. He did not admit at that point to being the person who perpetrated all of this stuff and uh he did touch on the fact that he was her was her confidant that it was her friend that they were very close but he also said some damaging things about her uh, which i'm not going to get into here
1: back at the fbi office in washington agents found everything they were looking for in bobby's computer and if you can imagine bobby wasn't going down easy
2: mr ironside had somehow got in touch with me down in Washington and requested a second interview. He came down to the, I believe he met us at the FBI office in Washington. And during that interview, he, while not fully confessing, he did make, he did admit to sending the two greeting cards that that ultimately were, were the final straws for Susan that went to her work. He admitted to those and he but as as many do he minimized his his role almost as if Susan was sad that these people were no longer interacting with with her and so he kind of the way he intimated to me was that he he perpetrated it in order to benefit or help Susan. And I know hearing me say that doesn't make any sense. No. A lot of what he had said was he was there to help Susan and ultimately he continued this because she was she had a she had a, an obscene uh, crush on Leonard Macman, which he found odd because she Leonard, Leonard was her cousin but also a a cross dresser. So he found that these he found these things very very troubling, so he was trying to help her. Which of course didn't make sense. So he was ultimately later on charged with lying to the FBI, which uh, which showed the distinction between the first interview and the second interview, where he didn't admit to it, and then he came back in and actually changed his story. So his ultimate charge that he pled guilty to was lying to the FBI
1: most people would choose the right to remain silent but not bobby
0: any lawyer defense attorney in the world is going to tell you don't say anything say i'm you know i have the right to remain silent and i want to talk to my lawyer i don't know i don't think he had a point but i think it was extremely foolish and arrogant on his part in terms of self-preservation to basically make the rope in which to hang himself with. I mean, once he knew that the FBI was involved, all he had to do was stop. Yeah. All he had to do was stop. That would have been it. Okay, the game is over. He had his chuckles. He can look back and you know relish his favorite moments and just let it go. And because that really would have been the end of it. That really would have been the end. All he had to do was just stop, which he did for a while. But then the the draw was too delicious. It was too active. He couldn't stop.
1: There was a plea hearing where Bobby represented himself. It didn't go very well. His explanation for all this? Well, Bobby Ironside said in court that it started out as a prank and it just went too far. Susan and he would pull pranks on each other all the time, and when the judge pointed out that this just wasn't a one-time prank, Bobby made sure to remind the judge, and I quote, I couldn't have done it without her. And the judge asked, And I quote, that's an odd thing to say. What do you mean you wouldn't have been able to do it without her? Bobby said, quote, well, she corresponded. This wouldn't have been possible if she wouldn't have written back. Bobby Ironside ended up doing time for his charades. Three months imprisonment followed by three years supervised release. You can read all about what happened to bobby and the rest of susan fenson's story in her memoir you have a very soft voice susan a shocking true story of internet stalking i'll have a link in the show notes i was curious about bobby i was wondering where he's been this whole time I searched the internet and I couldn't find any trace of him on social media. I did a background check and there's no evidence that Robert Ironside has purchased any property. Then I searched court records to see if he's gotten into any trouble with the law and bingo. I found out that Bobby moved to Florida. All I will say is that in 2009, Bobby Ironside failed to report to his probation officer. I won't get into specifics about his probation violation because I don't want to invade his privacy, but let's just say that Bobby's life took a dark turn and it is very clear that he is a very disturbed man who clearly needs professional psychiatric help This has been a very dark season and the next few stories are just as sick. So bear with me. I promise we will end the year on a lighter note, but it seems like you guys like this story. So I've never had a reaction like this to a story before. If you can't get enough of this story, I posted two bonus episodes on Patreon. In the first bonus episode, Susan Fenson tells us a story that didn't even make it in her book, but it's just as crazy as everything else. The second bonus episode is my full interview with special agent Brandon Waller. I thought the whole interview was fascinating, and I'm sure you'll find it fascinating too. To listen, go to pretendradio.org and click the donate button. My Patreon supporters get bonus episodes like these, plus early and ad-free episodes. And, I also send out cool swag like stickers and screen printed t-shirts. One more thing. If you're anywhere near Charleston, South Carolina, come out and hang out with me, Melissa with Moms and Murder, Nina Instant with Already Gone, Steven Pacheco with Trace Evidence, Erica Kelly with Southern Fried True Crime, and many, many more shows. It's the Southern True Crime Podcast Meetup on October 26th, RSVP right now, I'll have the link in the show notes. Today's show was written by me and edited by Molly Brock. Our theme music was written and composed by Joe Basio with the TheChicken.net. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear.
3: This story begins in a small town. This small town is a lot like any other small town, except for one glaring difference. In the outskirts of this town lies the village of Sleepy Hollow, a place that has been plagued with mysterious sightings and paranormal events since the 1700s. And in 1790, Sleepy Hollow became the home of one of history's most infamous mysteries the vanishing of ichabod crane
0: when washington irving wrote the tale of sleepy hollow he called it fiction but is it really
3: this halloween a newly discovered piece of evidence will change everything you think you know about that story from the team that brought you vanished amelia Earhart, comes a two-part special investigation into one of the most puzzling and horrifying disappearances in america's history join us as we chase new leads and interview new experts. Featuring the voice talents of Ash and Aziz of History of Westeros.
0: I see your headless horseman every time I close my eyes. If Crane is
3: foolish enough to challenge me, I shall double the schoolmaster up and lay him on a shelf of his own schoolhouse. Rob Christofferson of Our Strange Skies. I often wake in the middle of the night and see things in the darkness. T.J. Cunahan of Pints and Puzzles. We know what happened that night. Everyone knows. Lainey Hobbs of True Crime Fan Club. I found something that I need you to see. Chris Cogswell and Marie Mayhew of Mad Scientist Podcast. And so it's a fascinating case of a ghost story leading to a really physical manifestation. Javier Leva from the Pretend Podcast.
1: Con artists have been around since the beginning of time.
3: Also, with Forrest Burgess of Astonishing Legends. Was a paranormal event the cause of Ichabod Crane's disappearance? And narrated by me, Adam Ballinger, of Graveyard Tales.
0: Smith and
2: Vincent, this is Jennifer.
3: So, you're still chasing ghosts? Vanished, Sleepy Hollow. Part 1, available October 23rd. Part 2, available on Halloween on all major podcast platforms.
0: Creative Babble.